Well, it has been called communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the agape, the love feast. It has been celebrated for 2,000 years in different places, languages, and with different customs. It has been done in secret and in public, with individuals in their hospital rooms and in big ritualized services. And it comes with a lot of questions. What is actually happening when we do communion? Why do we call it with different names? What style should we be doing with communion? And so today I want to talk about communion. In fact, what I really want to do is give you a history of communion. And we're just going to start with Jesus and work our way to today in the festival that we're going to celebrate in just a little bit. I want to read to you Paul's account of communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, the body and the blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. Here ends the reading of God's word. Communion began 2,000 years ago, when Jesus, the night he was betrayed, the night before he died on the cross, celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And he was really looking forward to this. This was a great family affair. Some of you have been to a Passover Seder here before or other places and in the Passover meal, you celebrate the, the uh, Israelites coming out of Egypt when the angel of death passed over all of Egypt and those who had slain a, a lamb and put the blood around the doorpost were spared. And yet those who did not have the blood on the doorpost, they were not passed over. And the firstborn in that household was killed. During the celebration, the bread is broken. Bread representing that lamb who was slain. And wine is drunk at several different times. For to, in, in this particular case, the, the cup right after supper has always been the cup to represent the blood of that lamb. And so when Jesus celebrates with his disciples, he's walking into all this imagery and he's saying, listen, I'm that lamb. I'm going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed. But because of it, you're going to be spared. 
Now, when we picture this, we picture this typically through Leonardo da Vinci's eyes. Now, there's a couple problems with Leonardo's uh, uh, picture. Number one, their very colorful cloth wouldn't have been realistic. Number two, if you look in the background, it's definitely a building from Leonardo's time, not from Jesus' time. See how square it is and square the ceiling is. This is definitely not how it would be. And what's the other obvious problem with this picture? There's no chalice. But they're all on one side of the table. Does that bother anybody else? Who goes to their house and sits on one side of the table? It's ridiculous. But that's how da Vinci painted it, and that's how we tend to picture it. Here's a more realistic picture. This is a kind of table that they probably sat at. It's called a triclinium. So triclinium three, three-sided, and uh, you, it was set up so that a servant or a host could walk down the middle to serve. The only other place I see a table like this is at Hibachi, right? If you ever go to Hibachi, they have this so that you can cook, but that's the only other place I see a table like this. This is probably the kind of table Jesus sat at. And uh, if you look, um, this is pretty realistic because you notice they're lounging on the floor. At Passover, you, you lounge. You normally sit on the floor, so it's a very low table. And you normally do it with your cloak and your shoes on. Um, because you're celebrating the fact that the, the, Israeli, the, the Jewish people got to leave that night. And so you're supposed to do this dress up. So this is a much more realistic picture of what Jesus may have been doing. Although, there's a good possibility that Jesus was not at the head of the table, but maybe moved to the servant position. He may have actually been serving the table, which would have been very rare, but also would have fit with the fact that that night he washed the disciples' feet. Because that's where the, what the servant would have done. So this is a much more realistic first communion picture. And so because Jesus does this with his disciples, and because he says, do this in remembrance of me, the early church gets it in their head that this is something that Jesus wants us to continue to do. Um, there's two things that the early church thought that Jesus did and commanded us to do. Communion and baptism. And so right away, those two things become, early, become important for the early church. There's one other thing that Jesus did and also said to, to follow his example, and that's foot washing. That didn't take off, and I'm pretty glad I don't really like feet, and I would not want to be doing that a couple times a year. But communion and baptism right away become important. So the early church would gather, and uh, we know from Paul's description, that's the Apostle Paul, that is Corinth. That's ancient Corinth right there. So when Paul writes his letter that we just were reading about to Corinth, Paul says a couple things. First of all, Paul calls it the Lord's Supper. Although he doesn't necessarily call it as a title, but that's the first sort of term. But it doesn't come into play till later. It's called other things early on. But we can gather a few things from Paul's description. Number one, the people gathered in homes to eat. There's no churches. They have not been allowed to be in the temple and do this. And Paul's writing to a primarily uh, um, Gentile audience anyway. So they're meeting in homes. They're having a meal together. Having a time of prophecy and preaching. If they have a letter, like the church at Corinth, they might have had Paul's letter and they might have repeated it. Or you might have had people in the church that had heard stories about Jesus. You don't have a Bible yet. So you gather to sort of share those things, tell those things. And then towards the end of the meal, 
the bread and the wine would be passed around for the celebration. Now at Corinth, there's apparently a problem with this. Number one, there are people that are coming and they're really hungry. So they're eating all the food. So when they go to do communion, there's no bread left. Or they don't have enough bread for everybody to partake. Number two, they're getting into the wine a little too early and a little too hard. And apparently there's some drunkenness going on in these meal services. So it's getting really rambunctious. The other thing that's happening in Corinth, we know from some of the other passages, is they're setting up a seating arrangement like you would have in meals of those days. And so the important people got good seats and they got good wine and they got the wine first. And then people who had to sit down and on the floor or in other parts of the house, they maybe not even, they didn't even get communion because they would run out of stuff. And so Paul is going to correct that to say, no, no, no. Communion is a time when we're all at the table, where everybody's welcome, and you better pay attention to your heart as you come to communion, because there's no room for that. In fact, if you're celebrating the freedom that God gives you at this table, at the expense of other people, you're bringing judgment on yourself. Paul's pretty serious about this. So the high point of the service is definitely um, the sacrament. Um, in, let's see, 1873, some archaeologists found a document. It, it, it's called different things. That's how it's spelled. Uh, I learned it as Didache, but there's a bunch of different ways to pronounce it. But the Didache was a first century collection of teachings, the Didache means teachings, from Syria, from the middle to late first century. So this is, this is teaching from the Christian church while some of the apostles are still around. And it's interesting because it has the earliest real spread of what communion and worship look like. The earliest worship service we have comes out of here. The meal in there is called the Eucharistia. Eucharist, and that word means thanks. Okay, so when the Lord holds up and gives thanks, that's the word Eucharist. So you have give thanks or blessing. This meal is also called the agape. Agape means love. It's called the love feast or the agape feast. They did not as much as we do today emphasize the death of Jesus but instead really emphasized the elements as symbols of the church that Jesus had called into existence. Actually, in your bulletin today is part of the Didache liturgy for communion, and we're going to use it when we go to communion. We're going to use a first century liturgy uh, that's been translated and adapted to our day. We also know that the early church did not include non-believers at the table. So if you weren't a part of the church, a regular part of the church, you were asked to leave. Um, and so it was actually rumored, and some of the early critiques of the Christians were that they were, in fact, cannibals. Because the rumor was going around that they would close doors and they would eat a body and drink blood. And nobody was quite sure what to do with that. So some of the early critiques of the Christians were that they were cannibals. This is, how, this is how it was for many, many years in the early church, met primarily in houses. There are some early forms of uh, sanctuaries, a lot of them in people's homes. Um, this particular one is called the Chapel of St. Ananias. It's in Syria, uh, and it's from, about the, it's from the first century, late first century AD. So we know there were some places like this, where, where worship was held, although the pews would be much newer. 
Um, normally people just sat at chairs if you had them in your home. But worship is primarily standing until about the 12 or 1300s. So feel good about being in pews. Because you would stand for hours in those services. Um, as the Christians became more prominent, there was an emperor named Constantine who claimed to be a Christian and in the Edict of Milan in 313 AD declared uh, Christians to have tolerance. Other than, until then, the Christians were still very persecuted. Once it gets tolerated, it starts to really take on the centerpiece of the Roman Empire and more and more churches became, become important. It becomes an official religion, gets organized and gets places of worship and that changes communion, right? Because now we're not doing it in homes, we're doing it as part of services. Um, and and it, it captures a little more of the Jewish understanding of worship, but still, it changes. Worship becomes a little more formalized, and the sacrament of communion becomes a little more ritualized. But that goes to the extreme as we move into the medieval times, the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. S depending on how you date it, from the 5th century to the 15th century, it's called the Dark Ages because of all the fighting that was going on, all the sickness, the poor conditions that many people lived in at this time. Um, worship became very different in those times. Very formalized. It was primarily done in Latin, not in the native tongue. So imagine, you're, you're poor, you're going through all of this, you come to worship and you don't understand anything that's being said. It's all being said in Latin. You don't have a Bible for yourself. There's no Bible in your language. It's only in Latin. And you couldn't read it if you had one anyway. But what is your Bible? Your Bible is your sanctuary. Your Bible is your liturgy. And so the sanctuaries were built to be cross-formed. And normally the inside of the sanctuary was made to look like the inside of a boat. You can see that a little bit on our sanctuary here today. And this, the sanctuary would have been in a cross-form. You can see that a little bit in our sanctuary too with these two doors to the side. Used to be you would have seating over here and over here. And then you'd have a front part where communion would take place. And the front of the sanctuary was always in the east. Okay? They, they didn't orient it towards the road. They always oriented it towards east. So that you would come in and the front would be the rising of the sun. So when you would go to communion, the communion table would be up, up front. And communion was, at that point, really, really ritualized. It was thought that the elements actually became the body and blood of Christ. And so it was very secret. There would sometimes be walls. We have a little bit of a reflection of that here. There would sometimes be partitions, so you couldn't always see what was going on. And the priests would have their back to you and be working on the communion and dividing it up and doing all that stuff. And then there would be a point at which the, the communion would be raised like this. And it was normally kind of a round piece of bread. So it would look like a sunrise. Everybody see that? Well, look, it's in the east. Sun goes up. The sun is rising. And the priest would say, Hoc est corpus. Meaning, this is my body in Latin. Hoc est corpus. But what, what does that sound a little bit like? It actually, especially in Dutch, sounds like hocus pocus. That's... that's some believe where the phrase hocus pocus comes from because it was this magical moment where the bread becomes the body of Christ. And it was so frightening and it, it became such a high point of worship that a lot of times people wouldn't even take communion. In fact, what they would often do is they would open the door to the back of the sanctuary and some people would look 
look from back there or look through the windows and then would wait to see that and then would drive away because they just couldn't handle it or they would walk away because they just could not handle seeing that magic moment. Here the, uh, the term is called the mass. It's from the word missa. Um, from the word we get dismissal, to leave, to go. Also the word we get mission comes from this same word missa. It could be because the last part of the liturgy was a missa, ascending. Um, but it's also believed that it could be called the mass because if you weren't part of the church community, you had to leave. So you were dismissed at that time. So communion becomes this, this high thing. You can't see it as well, but in a lot of paintings of the medieval mass, there's like a panicked look in the pews because of this moment. This sort of stays this way until the Reformation. At the Reformation, some of these things get called called into question. Reformations in the 1500s, 1517, Martin Luther nails his theses to the wall. It quickly uh, starts thinking about theology, worship, and the church governments. And so too, the communion that comes in place. A couple of things changed for the Reformers. One is we started to stand, instead of communion being very private, people started to stand behind the table. And so it was a much more welcoming understanding of community. It's called a table at that point and not an altar because what the reformers said is we don't need another sacrifice. Jesus already was the sacrifice. So we don't need an altar. We need a table. And they often called it communion. This is the first time the term communion really takes on. It's in the Reformation because we're communing with God and with one another. Now, there's still a lot of debate in the Reformation about what's really going on with the sacrament. The Reformers didn't want to say it was actually the body and blood of Christ, but what they did want to say is is there's something special going on, or at least most did. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, and he wanted to say there was something special going on with the bread and the juice. He just didn't quite know what it was. That it wasn't actually the body and blood, but it was still special. And so um, his view is often called consubstantiation. The Catholic version had been transubstantiation, trans, changed, it changed. For him, it's something happened, but it didn't totally change. A guy named Ulrich Zwingli from the Swiss, he was a Swiss reformer, started a group called the Anabaptists because they didn't baptize infants. And later they were called the Baptists. I don't know how that change happened. But anyway, Swiss reformer, he said there's nothing special about communion. It's just a simple. But John Calvin, from which our tradition comes, he thought there was something going on, but that it wasn't the bread and the juice itself that had the specialness. It was the table. That by going to the table, we were communing with God in some special way and with each other. So, Calvin had this idea called real presence. Where this becomes a really big deal, by the way, is after church. What do you do with the bread and the juice? Okay, if, if it's really Christ's body and blood, the priest has to partake all of it. If, it's some, if, it's, if you're Lutheran, you either throw the bread out into the, the yard or you do something with it to give it back to nature. We don't think that there's something special about the bread and juice. We think there's something special about the table. So if you would like to have a little more bread, come downstairs after church. Uh, you can have some. The bread isn't the specialness. The table is the specialness for us. Since the Reformation, three different things have especially changed how we do communion today. One of these things, they're called communion tokens. Have you ever heard of a communion token? Our church used to have them for a long time. 
communion tokens, what you would do is you would meet with the session on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And if you were honestly living the Christian life and they thought you were worthy of communion, you got a token. And when you came on Sunday morning, you plopped your token into the, something that the ushers were, the elders were holding and you could come forward for communion. This one is from 1806, the Associate Congregation of Coldstream that's in Scotland, uh, Reverend A. Thomas, or Thompson. Uh, and they normally have something like that, this doing a remembrance of me, quoting from Luke. Um, I really like this communion token. It's a very good representation of it. And I'm especially excited because I bought it this week. bought this on eBay. But anyway, kind of cool to think about communion tokens. Um, our church, by the way, did this until somewhere in the ministry of Reverend A.G. Wallace, 1868 to 1884, our church stopped doing this. I wish we had some of these. If anybody's got coins that say Westminster or something, bring them in because our church had them. We used to use them. Um, so communion tokens, we dropped that, I think, because it was so hard to get session members to do it. Anyway, um, communion method. Here's another question for you. How many of you think that serving in the pews with the little cups are the oldest way we do communion? Or the other way is kind of intention. You come up and you dip. How many think communion cups, little cups, oldest? Dipping the bread, oldest? This is a very non-committal group. Okay. Little communion cups, 1800s. Not till the 1800s we have this. It was a huge debate. Huge debate. You can go and look at articles where they're saying, can we do communion like this? No, the old way, this is very, very new. In fact, our church got communion cups in about 1890. So the first 90 years of something forming of our church, there's no little communion cups. Everybody came forward. This is the other thing that gets kind of interesting for communion. Prohibition. There's a guy named Thomas Bramwell Welch. Welch is grape juice, right? He was a staunch Methodist and didn't believe that wine should be used in communion. So he came up with a way of pasteurizing grape juice so that you could have non-alcoholic elements in worship. He was the first person to pasteurize this. So before the late 1800s, it was wine. It's not until you get grape juice that you can have grape juice. Um, and then it was really prohibition that made a lot of Presbyterian and Methodist churches move to grape juice and have never looked back. Most of the world still uses wine. So today, we're going to have grape juice. We'll be serving by intention, the older way of doing it. We'll come forward with the elements. We can bring them to you if you need. But we're going to participate in this ancient and sacred act. It's actually a little overwhelming when you think of all the images and all the history of communion. That we're communing with God. That in some way we're carrying on this ritual that has been done for 2,000 years. But ultimately, the meal has always had one purpose, to glorify God, to point us back to Jesus and to be the meal that sustains us for doing the work that God has us to do. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this sacrament of communion, for your grace, for your love. Speak to us as we go to the table, we pray. Amen.